Hi, and welcome to Season 4, Episode 5 of Bad Gaze, a podcast about evil and complicated queers in history. I'm Ben Miller, a writer, researcher, and member of the board of the Schwules Museum in Berlin. And I'm Hugh Lemmy, a writer and author. So last week we talked about Benjamin Britten, a significant mid-century British composer who uh, combined homosexuality, communism, and pacifism with uh, entry into the very highest levels of British society, but also had a series of very troubling relationships with adolescent boys. Who are we talking about this week, Hugh? A few episodes ago, we discussed the life of Liberace, for whom uh, delivering a sort of comforting, light, and unchallenging form of popular classical music to the masses created for himself vast wealth and allowed him to indulge his lifelong bad taste. Today's subject is perhaps the anti-Liberace, a man for whom the dangerous, subversive and avant-garde was his passion, who eschewed the middle brow and loved the urbane and modernism. He was known in his life not just as a man of taste, but as a taste maker, somebody who set the tone for elite cultural society in his lifetime. He is the author, critic and photographer, Karl van Vechten. The society in which van Vechten was raised was regarded as, I suppose, the moral bedrock of WASP America. He was born in Cedar Rapids, Iowa, to Charles Duane Van Vechten and Ada Amanda Van Vechten, and his family were pillars of the Cedar Rapids community. His father was a respected banker and insurance broker, a member of the Freemasons, and according to his, his obituary, a benefactor of the Home for the Friendless, the Art Association, Coe College, and the Home for Aged Women. His mother, Ada Amanda, established the Cedar Rapids Public Library. They attended the local Universalist church and were close friends with the pastor. And they had three children, Ralph, born in 1860, who became president of Cedar Rapids National Bank, and Emma, born in 1867, who married and whose son went into banking too. Then, 13 years after Emma was born, they had their last child, Carl van Vechten, born 1880. Carl van Vechten was not like the rest of his family or the rest of Cedar Rapids. While his classmates were embodying the ideals of American wasp masculinity, enjoying sport and politics, Carl lost himself in theatre and music. They cultivated, uh, while they cultivated themselves in the vein of Charles Duane to become the upright citizens of bourgeois middle America, Carl was dreaming of escape to the corrupting, exhilarating city. All Carl wanted was not to be in Cedar Rapids, Iowa. Perhaps due to his unexpected arrival and the age gap between himself and his siblings, he was a doted on child who wanted for nothing, the apple of his parents' eye, who received all the privilege and luxury of having older parents who had built a prosperous life for themselves. He was precocious and insistent upon his mother's attention, and as a result was something of a spoilt child, remarking later that even the death of kindly grandparents or the tragic early death of his cousin Roy, who took him birdwatching, didn't concern him much. But there was also a progressive streak within this waspy family. His mother attended college and was a supporter of women's suffrage. Although his parents employed black servants, a gardener and a laundry maid, they insisted that Carl address, it, address them as Mr. Oliphant and Mrs. Circe, rather than by their first names, as is common at the time. So while that might seem like a small gesture, within white bourgeois America, giving this level of respect to black employees was actually quite radical. And it seemed that such attitudes wore off on young Carl. Carl's artistic temperament, shall we say, uh, attracted unwelcome attention. His beloved Uncle Charlie suggested he channel them into commerce by working in advertising, saying, quote, What line of Shakespeare do you think ever had such wealth-creating opportunities within its compass as the immortal, Good morning, have you used Pear's soap? 
but it was theatre and dance that beguiled him. His biographer, Edward White, suggests that this attraction to performance was part of his nascent sexual awakening, not least when, at the age of 12, he, attend- um, he watched a local 16-year-old boy dressed as a woman perform a can-can in the crypt of the local church. But he didn't allow the pressures of being a young queer distract him from creative pursuits. Throughout his childhood and adolescence, he put on plays and especially took photographs with his family's box camera. Uh, he posed his friends in the manner of popular magazines at the time, and he kept scrapbooks and made collages. But all the time, he was just waiting to escape. I feel like Carl's story is actually very familiar, not just to previous characters we've had in Bad Gays, but also to many young gay men growing up in the provinces. Urban life holds some sort of early year for us, becoming in our imagination a place where we can manifest our true selves, where we might fit in by being able to pick and choose when we can dissolve into the crowd and when we can emerge into the spotlight. Age 19, at the very turn of the 20th century, he moved to Chicago and enrolled at the University of Chicago. At last, the big city. And Carl took advantage of it, going to the theatre and bars and opera, art galleries. It was in Chicago that Carl got a taste, not for the polite society of Cedar Rapids, but for the raucous nightlife of the city. The housekeeper at his fraternity was um, a black woman named Desdemona Sublet, and she introduced Carl to the black cultural scene in the city, taking him out to bars, clubs, and parties. I'm sorry, what was her name? Desdemona Sublet. <laughs> Is your name, name on the lease? No. <laughs> I'm only Ms. Sublet. Um, through, through Sublet, he, uh, he met a singer called Carita Day, writing, quote, I used to go downtown sometimes to nightclubs, and I met a woman who I, whom I got to be very fond of and liked very much. She was a fascinating person and sang like an angel. It was in Chicago that Carl began to become obsessed with black American culture, an obsession that developed throughout his career. It's this relationship with black culture that really defines Van Vechten's life, and it's a complex and difficult one one built on a genuine respect, but also manifest through exploitative relations and realized itself in work that was damaging for black Americans. I think it's also an extremely pertinent life to discuss in the current moment when there's such a profound discrepancy between the cultural reach which black American culture has and the violence, discrimination and material inequality that black American people are forced to endure and where the presence of black, uh, black culture consumed, um, and sometimes appropriated by white people, is often weaponized to pretend that that violence and inequality doesn't actually exist. But anyway, when Carl finishes university, he decides to start a career as a critic, and he lands himself a job with the newspaper, The Chicago American. He has a column called The Chaperone, a sort of gossip column meets cultural criticism. Here, his writing style really came together. This kind of Rococo excess in his bitchiness. He was sacked three years later, he claimed for writing disparaging reports about the wardrobe of the wife of the paper's business manager at a horse race. And he was told that his tone was, quote, sorry, he was told that his work was, quote, lowering the tone of the Hearst newspapers, which, if you know anything about the tone of the Hearst newspapers, is quite an insult. He left the city and moved to New York, which was rapidly becoming one of the most exciting cultural centers in the world. There he got a job at the New York Times as an opera critic, and from there moved to Europe to submerge himself in the world of opera. The New York Times is renowned even to this day for only employing the highest standard of fag opera critics to cover European opera. Isn't that right, Ben? Well, you know, I do more previews than criticism, but, uh, <laughs> you know, it's um, still an exclusive club. 
Um, so in Europe, he stayed in London for a year. And while he was there in 1907, he married a friend from his childhood, Anna Schneider. Um, before long, he was back in New York and was working again for the New York Times as a dance critic. He met the glamorous bisexual socialite and patron of the arts, Mabel Dodge Lewin, who became something of a mentor for him in the arts. And having lived in Europe, she was friends with the avant-garde writer, Gertrude Stein. And she began to introduce him to this social and artistic scene that was emerging at the time. This was really the very early days of modernism, around the time of the Cubist movement, and Karl von Wechten got in on the ground floor. With the new cultural movement came a new social scene, and van Wechten became a social butterfly, attending premieres and openings. His marriage, however, was deteriorating, and in 1912, Carl and Anna got divorced. A year later, he moved from the New York Times to the New York Press as their drama critic, and he embarked on another trip to Europe. Again, um, he was significant at this point for his wholehearted embrace of the avant-garde, he attended the opening night of Stravinsky's Ballet, The Rite of Spring, in Paris in 1913, perhaps the legendary breakthrough event of modernist music, a performance so shocking that the audience, comprised of young bohemians and established bourgeois, broke out into a riot, fighting each other in the auditorium as the dancers performed on stage. This is also an event in which uh, another, at least... Uh questionably moral gay actually several questionably moral and questionably gay people were involved in this performance performance uh the dancer nozinski the impresario diagolev and uh, some say stravinsky himself um, thanks for that our resident opera queen well, no, it's a ballet right no it's about it's not an opera and no one sings <laughs> you so if you want to talk about mm. the breakthrough of modernist opera you would be more speaking about um I can't continue. Uh, anyway, so in his review, Van Vechten wrote, quote, A certain part of the audience was thrilled by what it considered to be a blasphemous attempt to destroy music as an art, and swept away with wrath, began very soon after the rise of the curtain to make catcalls and to offer audible suggestions as to how the performance should proceed. The orchestra played unheard, except occasionally when a slight lull occurred. The young man seated behind me in the box stood up during the course of the ballet to enable himself to see more clearly. The intense excitement under which he was labouring betrayed itself presently when he began to beat rhythmically on the top of my head with his fists. My emotion was so great that I did not feel the blows for some time. Um, but actually, that was entirely fabrication. Van Vechten had actually failed to get tickets for the opening night, and he actually saw the second night. But it nonetheless betrays his enthusiasm for the avant-garde as a movement of thrilling disruption of the old order, and he intended to become a crusader for it. Reporting on events that you didn't attend is generally frowned upon in that exclusive category of fag opera critics employed by the New York Times to go through Europe, and uh, certainly not something that I would ever do. Just yeah, the lightness ends there, does it, Ben? <sighs> I think um, it ends earlier than there, because I think he was much prettier <laughs> than I am. But um, So while he was in Europe, he got to meet Gertrude Stein, and he struck up a friendship. And he was captivated by what he saw as Stein's genius and her bohemian taste, not least the male nudes by Picasso that decorated her house. And he wrote to his lover in New York that their dicks were, quote, bigger than mine. Uh, he was a prolific... Le notice when you see a Picasso? Oh, how big's a dick? I mean, that's what I'm looking for, isn't it? What you're looking for, Hugh? <laughs> he was a prolific letter writer, in fact, and as a result, they became not only friends, but creative peers with Stein encouraging his early attempts to become a fiction writer. 
He began to become something of a literary champion for Stein, and um, not just to get her work published, but he also helped to introduce her to a much wider audience in the US. Stein would later write, quote, I always wanted to be historical, almost from a baby on. Carl was one of the earliest ones that made me be certain that I was going to be, end quote. Back in New York in August 1914, Van Vechten wrote a major piece of literary criticism on Stein entitled, quote, uh, How to Read Gertrude Stein, and it was published in a trendy arts magazine, and he wrote, quote, uh, she has really turned language into music. Miss Stein drops repeated words upon your brain with the effect of Chopin's B minor prelude. They remained close friends for the rest of their lives, and later in their correspondence, they took to referring to each other in almost familial terms, with Van Bechten as Papa Woojums, uh, Stein's partner Alice B. Toklas as Mama Woojums, and Stein, despite being the eldest of the trio, as Baby Woojums, which is weird. <laughs> Um, not to be judgmental, but Van Bechten's role as not just a critic, but as someone who um, sought out and brought to attention and explained these exciting new cultures was to be the thing that really made his name. Indeed, um, one of his excellent biographies, which is by uh, Edward White, from which um, I researched some of this episode, is entitled The Tastemaker, which is an excellent way to put it, really. He was the first person to really cheerlead for the dancer Isadora Duncan, for example. And he was a key part in what was known as the Melville Revival, the rediscovering of the works of Herman Melville on the 100th anniversary of his birth, which really delivered Melville into the canon of American greats. He regarded Melville's Pierre, or The Ambiguities, which had been derided on publication, as a work that should rank alongside Joyce's Ulysses, or Lawrence's Women in Love. In the words of Edmund White, no other critic in the United States came close to producing the same enthusiasm and depth of insight about such a bright breadth of music and dance, from the blues to Schoenberg. Back in New York in 1914, he remarried, this time to Fania Marinov, a Russian Jewish actress, 10 years his junior, who had been smuggled to the US as a stowaway as a child. Although he said of her that she was, quote, the only one that I've ever found who completely satisfies me, uh, unfortunately, his actions suggest otherwise. She knew of his bisexuality, um, but he proved basically constitutionally incapable of being faithful to her. Uh, and he continued to have a number of often very long-term sexual and romantic affairs with men throughout their marriage, despite the pain that it caused her. And they argued a lot. Um, one of his most significant relationships was with Mark Lutz, a model 20 years his junior, who he met in 1931 when he was 51. And they remained friends and lovers uh, with each other until his death. But his writings are full of mentions of beautiful young men he was lusting after. And he made no secret of his same-sex desire to the extent that despite his marriages, he is actually usually referred to as a gay man. Anyway, the year after they married in 1915, his ex-wife sued him for alimony. Unable to pay, he was jailed for a month in, in Ludlow Street Jail in Manhattan. Um, but he came to an arrangement with Schneider, his ex-wife, and then he was released. And for her, sadly, life went downhill and she committed suicide in 1933, leaping from the window of a sanatorium in Paris. For Van Vechten, on the other hand, his life was only going to get better. Released from jail and married, his life was entering a new stage. First of all, he began to consider writing novels. Secondly, he discovered the black culture that was emerging in Harlem at the time, what would come to be known as the Harlem Renaissance. As we discussed during his college years, Van Vechten was a keen consumer of black culture from an early age, 
although he's often he often still discussed it in, in offensive terms with other white people. But the Van Bechtens were notable for not conforming to racist conventions in New York society at the time, having many close friends who were black and whom they visited at home and they invited to their own house. In 1924, they just moved into the beautiful large apartment on the top floor of 150 West 55th Street, which is just on the southern tip of Central Park. The Harlem Renaissance was a cultural revolution in New York life, an enormous flowering of intellectual, cultural and social life in the majority black neighborhood of Harlem in New York. It started in the immediate, immediate aftermath of the First World War and continued for nearly all of the interwar period. The Renaissance was in many ways a direct consequence of the Civil War and emancipation 50 years earlier and the subsequent process of Reconstruction and then Jim Crow in the aftermath. Immediately following the Civil War, there was a concerted effort by African Americans to assert their newly won legal and civil rights, and to build up economic prosperity and cultural self-determination, particularly in the South. This was countered by whites, and specifically the Democratic Party, who wanted to maintain the system of white supremacy and economic exploitation that had been secured by slavery. They set in place what became known as Jim Crow laws, a regime of local and state laws designed to enforce segregation and to disenfranchise black people in the South of their civil rights. These would remain in place legally until the 1960s and the civil rights movement, although the process of racist voter suppression and political and economic disenfranchisement and disempowerment, of course, continues to this day in all sorts of forms, not least, of course, the system of mass incarceration. America has about 2.3 million prison inmates, making up over 20% of the world's prison population, despite the fact that the US makes up only 4% of the world's population overall, and 40% of those prisoners are black, despite the fact that black people are only 13% of the US population. Faced with Jim Crow and the resurgent and incredibly powerful Ku Klux Klan, who enjoyed the collaboration and protection of law enforcement, and a huge peak in public lynchings in the disenfranchisement period following re uh, Reconstruction, Black people began to leave the American South in huge numbers and headed for industrial urban centers like New York, Detroit and Chicago. This process rapidly increased during the First World War when urban centers needed labor, but the wave of European migrants had slowed due to the war. And then in 1919, when in what is now known as the Red Summer, a wave of white supremacist violence destroyed entire neighborhoods and forced black people from their communities in the South although there was also huge amounts of um, organized racist attacks in northern cities as well. In 1900, nine out of every 10 black Americans lived in the South, the vast, vast majority in rural areas. Over the period of the first great migration, which lasted from 1916 to 1940, over 1 1.6 million black Americans moved from the rural South to the northern cities. In fact, there are actually subsequent migrations, and over the course of the 20th century, it's thought over 6 million African Americans moved from the South, one of the, mo uh, one of the largest internal migrations in history. Of course, racism is not just a Southern problem, and migrants encountered racism in their new homes too. Harlem had originally been built as a neighborhood for the affluent white middle classes, people like Van Vechten's parents. But the wave of immigration of low-income workers from Europe in the late 19th century had seen those middle classes move further out of the city. In Harlem, there'd been a large black community since the 1900s. And over the next 20 years, various groups of black investors and church groups brought property in the, uh, bought property in the borough, removing some of the impediments of renting and ownership that were inherent in the white landlord class. This new influx of migrants brought with them a diverse black musical culture from the South, such as jazz and blues, 
with musicians such as Louis Armstrong, Fletcher Henderson, Bessie Smith, Ma Rainey and Jelly Roll Morton, etc., all born in the South and either migrating North or regularly visiting New York. These migrants who had arrived as part of the Great Migration were also joined by black migrants from the Caribbean, who brought new influences as well. Migrants also bought or developed new literary styles, fashion and religious beliefs. So if you can imagine all these migrants arriving in the middle of a city, meeting each other, finding new links and opportunities and, and to some extent new freedoms, the whole thing helped to create a cultural explosion. You can see why with a nightlife which combined this sort of exciting social life with this revolutionary music like jazz, Carl would be drawn like a, a moth to a flame by the Harlem Renaissance. His attraction was all the stronger when he encountered the literary culture that was at the heart of the movement. The creation of politically radical newspapers, such as The Voice, started by the West Indian writer and activist Hubert Harrison, allowed space for poetry and reviews of books by black writers who addressed both the current political moment and also the experiences of racism and life in, a general, life in general in the South. So you have these writers like Langston Hughes, Zora Neale Hurston, and County Curran emerging within a culture of both popular appreciation, but also intense political and cultural criticism. In fact, Hubert Harrison rejected the idea of it being a renaissance at all, uh, and, and also the label that had at the time, which was the New Negro Movement, because he said that it was part of, quote, uh, a stream of literary and artistic, artistic products which had flowed un uninterruptedly from Negro writers from 1850 to the present. The name the New Negro Movement was uh, derived, in fact, from an issue of a magazine that was guest edited by the writer and philosopher Alan Locke, entitled, quote, Harlem, Mecca of the New Negro. He expanded this a year later into an anthology of writings, uh, essays and poetry by, uh, by African-American writers. This included Hughes and Hurston, as well as uh, political writers like W.E.B. Du Bois and Elise Johnston, Johnson McDougald. In the book, he argued that through, uh, through this new culture based around autonomy and self-expression, black people were creating a new identity that was challenging the simplistic racist cultural stereotypes that were enforced upon them by white supremacists. It's worth pointing out as well just how queer the Harlem Renaissance was. In fact, in the words of the historian Henry Louis Gates, it was, quote, surely as gay as it was black, although it was, of course, a source of tension with other sectors in the community, especially the churches, given the time period. It's not surprising. Queer women were front and centre of the movement. Some musicians, such as Ethel Waters or Bessie Smith, hinted at their sexuality in the, in the music to more or less subtle degrees. But um, in their day-to-day -day life, they lived relatively openly as lesbian or bisexual women. Authors like Alice Dunbar Nelson and singers like Ma Rainey had husbands and female lovers. As Bessie Smith sang, quote, When you see two women walking hand in hand, just look them over and try to understand. They'll go to those parties, have the lights down low, only those parties where women can go. And there were plenty of places to party. Gladys Bentley, who would appear in a, a white top hat, tails and men's trousers when she performed as a singer, um, she owned the Clam Club on 133rd Street, where queer people could openly mingle. And there was a drag ball each year at a club called Hamilton, Ho Hamilton Hall, which was reportedly attended by thousands. Within the movement, lesbians and bisexual women were known um, as women-loving women, but there were plenty of gay and bisexual men, not only within the movement, but addressing their sexuality in their work as a component part of their black identity. Um, Langston Hughes is perhaps the most famous example, 
but Claude McKay and County Cullen too, as well as Alexander Gumby, a historian whose literary salon was a, a hotbed of queer discussion and um, presumably love as well. And then there was, of course, um, Alan Locke himself, who introduced Cullen to the works of the English gay pioneer Edward Carpenter. Cullen responded in a letter to Locke that Carpenter's work had, quote, opened up for me soul windows which had been closed. It threw a noble and evident light on what I'd begun to believe, because of what the world believes, in ignoble and unnatural. Van Vechten threw himself into the Harlem Renaissance, attending parties and performances and getting to know many of the key literary and musical players. He began to use his photography skills to take photographs and, and portraits, and perhaps this is Van Vechten's most valuable legacy today. He produced thousands of actually very intimate and thoughtful portraits um, throughout the rest of his life, in fact, of everyone from uh, Zora Neale Hurston to Harry Belafonte, James Baldwin, Billy Holiday, Joe Louis, and even W.E.B. Du Bois, um, of whom we will discuss further later. And he didn't limit his photography to Harlem. He also took photos of Truman Capote, Marlon Brando, Frida Kahlo and Diego Rivera, and of course, Gertrude Stein. Carl was in an unusual position as a white man who had situated himself at the centre of his black culture. He was someone who could provide professional opportunities, advancement to black artists and writers, not on the basis of any particular talent he had as an agent or fixer, but purely because he could access white worlds and exert influence that no one else in the Renaissance could. And he used that influence, helping Langston Hughes, with whom he grew to have a very close friendship, and others such as Nella Larson, to find publishers who could promote their work in ways that they simply couldn't, they wouldn't be able to otherwise. But Van Vechten also approached black culture as a source of ideas that he could take and exploit. He was a key early example of what today we'd refer to as cultural appropriation, taking art, music and social cultures made by and for black people and packaging them in a way that were accessible and consumable for white readers who wouldn't otherwise have had access to or been a part of that culture. And in the process, he pocketed the money. Initially, this process was perhaps part and parcel of his cultural criticism, as he wrote for mainstream publications targeted at white audiences. He promoted the work of Hughes and Hurston and Wallace Thurman and Richard Wright in his articles, as well as the music of Paul Robeson and Ethel Waters. And his enthusiasm was, in his way, sincere and genuine. He regarded black American culture as the essence of modern America, the integral and unique American art form, and believed that in bringing black and white Americans together through modern culture, great, greater racial harmony and understanding could be achieved. And he certainly felt personally that he himself was freer to be himself and to be queer amongst the clubs of Harlem than within white bourgeois cultural society at the time. But his attitude, especially in the, the first five or ten years of his engagement with black culture, frequently perpetuated deeply racist stereotypes. He believed black people were natural entertainers and more sexually free. And despite his sentiments towards racial integration, he didn't seem to regard himself as part of the cultural community which he profiled and from which he'd extracted his ideas. And I'm afraid there's actually much worse to come. In 1920, he'd published his first novel, the oddly titled Peter Whiffle, um, about his experience as a cultural dilettante in Paris. And he decided he wanted to write a book about Harlem. And apologies for some of the very outdated language that's going to come in this section. Obviously, of course, I won't use the N-word, but there's still plenty of very objectionable language that he used. Um, he wrote to Gertrude Stein, 
I've passed practically my, my whole winter in company with Negroes and have succeeded in getting into most of the important sets. This will not be a novel about Negroes in the South or white contacts or lynchings. It will be about Negroes as they live now in the new city of Harlem, which is part of New York. And so he published it, a sort of swirling socialite novel about Harlem music, sex, prostitutions, parties and desire. A story by a white author about black people, and he gave it the title N-word, Heaven. Um, he and he was title, warned. He gave it the title what? The N-word and then Heaven. I'm not going to say the actual word. I, I know you're not going to say the actual word. No, I'm just I'm just emphasizing the fact that that's what he actually astonished by. I'm yeah. astonished by the fact that that's what he actually called this novel. Yeah, and and he was warned that the title was a bad idea at the time. Um, he told his friend uh, County Cullen um, the title before it was published, and then he wrote in his diary. He wrote that um, quote he turns white with hurt, and I talked to him. So he he clearly knew like that that this was hurtful. Um, and even his own father back in Cedar Rapids told him not to do it. But um, I guess that's the kind of person that Van Bechten was. He he regarded himself as a, provo a provocateur, like he, someone who, even when writing about black culture in Harlem, he wanted himself to be the centre of attention. And indeed, as a marketing device, the title worked. It became a literary sensation, a bestseller. It was advertised in the New York Times with the line, why go to Harlem cabarets when you can read the book title? So that clearly demonstrates his intention. He was he was packaging Harlem through this deeply racist lens and then selling it to white Americans. And yeah, it worked. Um, it was perhaps the first time the Harlem Renaissance, this, this boom in cultural production and the autonomy of the black communities to sustain and reproduce itself and to build its economy and to talk about itself and to innovate its own radical political discourse and to operate outside of this white gaze. It took all of this and for the first time, sold it to the white community as a, a racist fantasy based around stereotypes of uninhibited sexual desire and performance. And within the context of white supremacy, it's not just that this is like tasteless or exploitative, it, it's potentially a lethal thing to do to, to play up these stereotypes around sexual aggression um, at a time when lynching is, um, is part of the American culture in the South. But once the ball was rolling, white New York loved it. They really pounced upon this exoticized representation of Harlem and they devoured it. Um, but to the exclusion of the black people who actually pioneered it. And it led to the surging success, for example, of places like the Cotton Club, which was an American South themed cabaret that maintained Jim Crow laws that barred black customers, but featured black performers. Um, Jesus. And there are many more examples of this sort of, this sort of um, fad, this craze for, for the culture of, another another community within the same city who were excluded legally and and uh, socially from so much right and it's not even like it's not even as though uh van vechten is i mean this would also be potentially problematic for various reasons attracting a new clientele to existing black owned clubs that treat black people equally, but then maybe it's harder for black people to get or get in or to get a seat or maybe different incidents happen between people inside. It's that he's literally helping to sell the presence or the, the is helping to, to create sort of Harlem as a brand where then these institutions yeah. that are white owned and white controlled take over and present to white only audiences, a specific version of actually plantation themed black culture. Yeah, which has nothing to do with the original 
uh, Harlem culture anyway. And and Harlem culture, uh, the, the Harlem Renaissance exists because of uh, the nature of, of, of the white supremacist society. And then it's, it's sold to them as like a theme park where they go to the very place that exists and displace the people who live there. It's like an example of gentrification, I suppose. Um, displace the people who live there and exclude them from this theme park idea of their own culture. Um, yeah, that's really clear. It's so clear cut. Yeah. But what is um, perhaps the strangest is that, like, unlike earlier in the decade when he'd written to Stein, he now clearly did see himself as either within Harlem culture, if not if not part part of of black culture, then at the very least excluded from what he understood as prohibitions on white people, uh, what what white people can do within that culture. Like he understood he understood the nature of exploitation and the nature of what he was doing because in a footnote for the book, he noted about the word in the title that it was used by black people, um, but quote, its employment by a white person is always fiercely resented. So maybe it wasn't that he, he believed that he was, ex- he, that he was exempt from uh, exempt from that, but maybe a note that he actually knew how, how hurtful it was and he was going to do it anyway. Uh, he was aware. Um, and if he claimed to, I mean, is there anything that you were able to find on if he loved this culture so much or claimed to love this culture so much? Did he ever, I mean, it doesn't surprise me that someone would claim to love this culture so much and then be kind of, be somewhat blind to the ways in which they were inflicting harm. Uh, but this is so out there. I mean, did he ever, do you find any records that he ever considered any of this or talked about any of this or it, no, is that just? Well, yeah, I mean, he was, he talked to, um, he, he was talking to his friends before publication, like his black right, friends. But, I mean, did, but, but, but is it that, did he just not trust them or did he just think that his gratification was more important? Um, I think that he thought that it was the sort of thing that was going to make his name within white society, which he was right about. It, it, it was a sensation. You know, this is the book itself is, is uh, portrays these like very racialized types, but it's clearly an attempt by him to, uh, to illuminate something that he saw as real, within black culture. Like it's not like a gone of the wind or birth of the nation type of representation. Mm-hmm. Um, it, but it, obviously it's still um, both like offensive and, and stereotyping and, and dangerous, but um, he, he didn't believe, like he believed that he was doing something good, I guess, to, to bring these things together. But I think the title he knew was, um, hurtful and uh, dangerous and, and offensive, but he also knew that it was what would sell the book to white people. Um, and uh, I mean, Langston Hughes um, defended him to some extent, or he defended like the intention of his book. Um, but nonetheless, he faced, faced um, very fierce criticism from other, other black writers, obviously. W.E.B. Du Bois, the black sociologist, um, activist, writer, uh, historian, uh, socialist, you know, a, a titan of culture at the time in politics. He called the work, quote, an affront to the hospitality of black folk, um, which is clearly within the same tra- tradition um, as a lot of contemporary critiques of cultural appropriation. This is, I think that's a very good way of putting it, in fact. 
Um, but it was also uh, because the book portrayed, yeah, this stereotyped or, or at least partial image of black life that appealed to the most prurient racist fantasies of its its white readers um, around sexuality. And it did so knowingly, which is obviously uh, extremely counterproductive to a lot of the work that people like Du Bois, du Bois were doing at the time. Although both Hughes and um, Wallace Thurman did, um, if not defend the book, then at least attack its critics, which um, which uh, Van Vechten uh, biographer, Emily Bernard, um, who, who writes amazingly on this subject, um, she suggests that actually was a part of an attempt by them to distance themselves from their, their elders like Du Bois. It was, yeah. So um, while the book fueled this period of so-called Harlemania um, for a few years, it, it pretty much finished Van Vechten's career. Um, from the 1930s, the early 1930s, he stopped publishing any more books at all, really. And instead, he spent the rest of his life just taking photographs of the US cultural elite and, of course, partying. He was a, a socialite for the rest of his life. And um, despite his many male lovers, he remained married to, to Fania for 50 years. And he died in 1964 in New York at the age of 84. Thank you so much to all of you for listening to our show. We've now been downloaded more than 325,000 times, which is incredible. And we're so grateful for all of your support. And especially thanks to our Patreon listeners. Without your help, it really wouldn't be possible. It really wouldn't be. Um, and so we know you all know this, but we want to let you know that at our website, badgazepod.com, you can find a few very important things. One, you can find a link to our Patreon where you can support the show. Uh, second, you can find uh, some very beautiful T-shirts for sale. I'm wearing mine now, Hugh. Is it not lovely? Very nice. Uh, and you can also find, of course, an archive of all of our past episodes. Uh, we don't work with a media company. We don't put anything behind a paywall. We just rely on people who think that we're doing good work and who enjoy the show to uh, back that up with some support. And so we're really grateful to all of you who do. And we also understand that if you don't want to, times are tough. So you can also just completely keep listening. But uh, if you do want to support us, that's at badgazepod.com. Well, thank you, Hugh, um, so much for telling us uh, the life story of Carl van Vechten. Um, it's a life story that I've always been interested in because it's related in some way to my own research, um, which is about different groups of uh, political gay men and their use of uh, <clears throat> anthropological and ethnographic data about the primitive, quote unquote, uh, to uh, construct a politics against kind of bourgeois Fordist clock time. Um, and it's interesting in some ways because a lot of my work, and I do this work very cognizant of my own positionality as a white person, uh, and it's actually in many ways very influenced by queer of color studies, um, but a lot of my work attempts to look at some of these appropriations and think them, uh, as Eve Sedgwick might say, reparatively, that is to say, um, to without dismissing the ways in which they can harm, also look for ideas or concepts or ways of thinking that might be useful uh, or that might be rescuable. Um, and... Um, yeah, that's kind of it. And, and, and what's interesting is how difficult uh, it seems to be uh, to do that with, with Van Vechten because so many of these um, 
so many of these acts are so uh, harmful and he's told directly that they're harmful um you know in a way that you know someone like harry hay who i've who i've thought a lot about um you know in his life maybe like van vechten um he is working directly with um native activists uh american indian activists in uh, the american west on water rights campaigns um while he is also kind of looking to um, a very simplified uh, and not particularly well understood view of native cultures um, in order to derive some of his ideas about the social role of the homosexual. But at no point do any of those people uh, come to him, at least not that I've been able to find and document it, and say, like, stop doing this right now. What are you doing? Don't call it that. Don't say that. You know, no. <laughs> and then he just sort of barrels on. Um, these people who were sort of friends of Van Vechten and who then criticized him when he when he wrote the the novel, the name of which uh, I won't say, um, did any of them end their friendships with him? And conversely, were there any prominent black intellectuals who defended the book? Not that I could see how it would be defensible, but I am curious if uh, if it was defended by anyone. Um, as I'm aware. As far as I'm aware, he there, there wasn't uh, much defense of the book per se, but there was some defense of him and his intentions. Um, it was it, it wasn't universally derided, and, and as I say, um, Langston Hughes was 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 amongst those um, as well as Wallace Thurman. Um, but but also in terms of the damage that he did to his own relationships and friendships. Um, I couldn't find much evidence of that, including for the fact that, um, I mean, I think he came to, to very bitterly regret both writing the book and especially the title and, and not entirely for purely selfish reasons because it sort of collapsed his career eventually. Um, I think he did regret the harm that it caused. And later when he, uh, when he was devoting himself just to photographs, which he did for years, um, a lot of uh, prominent black intellectuals, both at the time he then photographed, you know, even W.E.V. Du Bois, he did a, a really wonderful portrait of, and um, people who weren't necessarily part of the Harlem Renaissance, but later later black intellectuals, people like um, James Baldwin, uh, for example, um, he photographed. Um, so, so I don't know if you can draw conclusions from the way that that, that those people didn't seem to. Uh, like want to exclude him from that sort of the culture that he was in. He seems he didn't seem to have been excluded in that way, um, which they entirely had a right to do. I think um, so. Um, so, but 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 none of that really forgives what he did, or especially the fact to me that he was um, that he was told by so many people beforehand that it was hurtful, and then and that he knew and and wrote as a footnote into the actual book that he knew that he shouldn't, uh, that he had no right to use that word. But it's not my role. It's not my, uh, obviously it's not my position, like as a, as another white author to like, um, pronounce him one way or the other. Right. And it also doesn't seem, you know, thinking about another, uh, the artist we talked about last week, Benjamin Britten, um, you know, one of the things that, that, we or, or I ended up concluding about him uh, was that the fact that the work itself grapples with the, pr the, the sort of 
grapples with and does not excuse um, the ethical issues around its creation um, is different from this. I mean, it's not that he wrote a book with that very offensive title using a racial slur, but then that the text was kind of about um, maybe a, a white author or, or a white narrator really deeply interrogating their investment in this kind of culture. Instead, it just seems like a, like a parade of easy stereotypes uh, intended to um, sort of titillate white audiences yeah. and in a way actually belittle um, the culture, uh, the cultural production that was taking place there, uh, both on a yeah, that he claimed to that he claimed to value so much as well. Yeah, yeah. And, and 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 in and and that's why I think um, Du Bois's criticism that the, the work was an affront to his hospitality of black folks seemed really to be at the at the core of the the critique of it as well, which is that um, uh, he he was he. He was allowed to enjoy the culture that he that he claimed to love and or clearly did did enjoy and and did value um, uh, within the world that it was produced and, and et cetera et cetera and then at this point he just extracts extracts it and extracts it in this way that is at its most damaging and most degrading and most insulting to the people who have made it who he claims to value one it's interesting you mentioned uh, Zora Neale Hurston. Um, she, some people don't know, um, was, as she began her writing career, uh, training in the Department of Anthropology at uh, Columbia University, um, which at that time was transitioning from being run by um, Franz Boas to uh, Ruth Benedict. Uh, Margaret Mead was also uh, around there at this time, and it's kind of the beginning of this um, or the, rather the heyday of this kind of cultural relativist uh, school of anthropology that that both is both a significant anti-racist um, turn away from the kind of uh, evolutionary or sort of stages of man theories uh, that dominated anthropological research in the um, in the 19th century um, and also sometimes um, I mean, both has anthropology's generally problematic relationship with colonialism and also often reproduces stereotypes about, about cultural essentialism. Um, it's almost as though Van Vechten is like the, the dark shadow of that form of, of research in some way, right? It's kind of an amateur, a kind of amateur anthropology, um, but maybe his big mistake was that unlike Margaret Mead, who could publish her rather questionable writing about, uh, you know, the growing up in Samoa or coming of age in Papua New Guinea, uh, but no one could read, no one who she was talking about could read what she had written. Uh, Van Vechten published in a way that his work could be read and criticized directly uh, by the people who, who he was writing about. And in the same way, that he was kind of creating uh, or attempting to describe or pretending to describe um, a kind of alternate social reality that was uh, intended to be kind of destabilizing and exciting for a white avant-garde in the same way that Mead was. Uh, but his was, uh, his was people who spoke English and uh, despite their oppression could buy books and answer him. Yeah. 
Yeah, I think that's a really relevant point. I think it's. I think from a literary point of view, I also think it's strange to think of these like conflicting times. You know, this guy. When I think of like this guy born and brought up in the gold in the Gilded Age, and um, and encountering um, this this literary work in the Harlem Renaissance that is like so um, so sharp and so thoughtly thought thoughtfully produced and so intelligent and moving um that they that that that, that work of, of people like hurston and hughes exi- coexists with this sort of like flappers 1920 1920s like crap fiction and that in this whole that that he encountered there and seems to have valued that those things so much and then the thing that he decides to do out of this this situation, he 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 thought him that I I would be the one who produces the great novel about this world, and not these people who are writing actually about it because of their own experience. Um, that he just sort of slams in with this like trash. Um, that can and, and the, the, that lat, lat literary world which like consumes his like crap so voraciously um, is the same is is the same time world the same content is, is contemporaneous with um with all with uh with all this like amazing stuff that's being produced by the people he's hanging out with and it's not like this problem has gone away i mean the um last year a record literary advance went to a book called american dirt which also got um a huge a hugely positive uh, initially hugely positive critical reception um and the author was a was a white woman, and the book was about uh, Mexican immigrants to the United States, and and the book kind of capitalized on uh, white liberal guilt about an attention to um, the United States barbaric and inhumane immigration policies that a lot of those same white liberals seem not to notice when Barack Obama was running them and putting the kids in cages, but never mind, they're noticing now. That's probably better. Uh, but anyway, um, this this white author got. A record book advance to write this book, and it was just criticized by many Mexican people for being just completely illiterate about uh, Mexican cultures, about the kinds of people who immigrate, about what immigration stories look like, um, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And uh, so it's just like um, these stories just keep repeating themselves, right? That uh, who can who can market a particular a particular uh, experience or culture or something that's that's achieving a certain kind of limited fame? I mean, what's interesting to me as a writer, um, or what's troubling to me as a writer, and I think as a white writer, the only thing to do is to kind of live in the discomfort of this. Um, is on the one hand, you cannot simply limit yourself to writing only from or of the point of view of your own experience. I mean, I, I don't think either of us would want to take standpoint theory quite, quite that far. Um, and fiction is full of characters that have been imagined uh, interestingly uh, across difference and sensitively across difference. Um, it's just, it's more of a question for me of why you're doing it. Um, and also of, I mean, I think to call your novel what he called his novel betrays an arrogance 
about the culture being described that for me is the bigger issue than the fact that he wanted to write a novel about black people. It's that it's that it's that the the, the whole thing came from a from a, a the point of view of knowing better, right? Um, and that's where I think it's really um, that's the kind of thing yeah, that's um, really damaging. I mean, there's just there's two there's two things here, isn't there? One of which is like the access of who is given the platform to speak. The reason he had this book published when, and uh, when he, when other authors who were clearly a lot better than him had to go through him to get their books published, if they could get them published at all, many, many didn't. Um, but he gets his published and it becomes a bestseller and he has his advertisements in the New York times. Whereas, um, so there's, there's that access to who, who gets to speak, which is obviously um, part of his white privilege. But then at the same time, there's um, the content of what is written and the reason that it's written and the message, the literary message that the person's trying to convey. Um, and in his case, like not only is he taking advantage of to, 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 to tell these stories because he has the access to the platform, but the way he, the stories he tells, much in the same way as American Dirt, seem to be written not, not from like they seem to be written for the entertainment and the consumption of white people. So it's a, per- a white person writing for other white people, the stories that they think white people want to hear about in this case, um, black culture in Harlem or in American dirt's case about migration, which, are, which, which is the effects of that become so, so dangerous as they, as they, uh, as they spread out from the ripples because, because so many white people who would be reading it, would come to assume, come to assume that that is what life is like for those people and will base their politics and their interaction with people around it. You know, so if he's writing about this pimp, for example, and this like sex culture and stuff, these are people who, who don't have contact with uh, black people other than on a sort of employment basis of people as their servants, for example. And they, they come to, that's how that's their, their understanding of like what black, black lives are is based around like, this right, this white guy from Cedar Rapids, you know, who has no, no clue other than the fact that he goes to party with people, really. Right, um, and who doesn't? Which is which, to... which is why which is why a hundred years later, the book is out of print and no one cares about it and has nothing to say. Whereas the book of the books of people like Hughes and um, Hurston are, are so important for understanding the experience of black people in Harlem at the time. Well, I think it's time to. Deliver our verdict to Carl van Vechten, bad gay or not bad gay? The episode clearly with the book is bad, you know, exploitative and appropriative and dangerous and racist. Um, I do wonder how he would be remembered had he not written that book specifically, if he'd just stuck to his books about Paris or just to his other work. Uh, his criticism and the photographs. I think maybe he would be, um, we'd have a different, a different of him of somebody who was, um, who, who didn't seem to betray a lot of the racist attitudes of people at the time. But then again, you know, if you what am I saying there is like, if you, if you, if it weren't for all the racist things he said and done, he's he'd said and done, he wouldn't be regarded as racist. So, so I'm going to say, yeah, I'm going to say like, um, complicated to bad and i would very much agree 
So Hugh, what are some sources uh, that people could go to if they wanted to learn more about Carl van Bechten? Um, yeah, I've got a bunch of sources, both books, but also a lot of really interesting articles, which I'd really recommend anyone interested to write, to write, to read, sorry. Um, so the two books that I was um, looking at was one was by Edward White, which is called The Tastemaker, Carl van Bechten and the Birth of Modern America. Um, which is very, very interesting. And uh, also like really fascinating is um, Carl van Bechten and the Harlem, Harlem Renaissance, a portrait in black and white by Emily Bernard. And um, there's a bunch of articles that you can find online as well. Um, there's an article called White Mischief by Khalifa Sané in The New Yorker. Um, there's an article by Edward White, The Making of an American in Paris Review. Uh, on processhistory.org, there's an article called have we a new sex problem here? Black queer women in the early Great Migration by Cookie Walner. And lastly, the, I use the article Cross-Racial cross Voicing, Carl van Bechten's Imagination and the Search for an Afri African-American Ethos by uh, David G. Holmes in College English. Well, thank you so much for listening to our episode. You can follow me on Twitter at Ben Writes Things. And you can follow me on Twitter at Hugh Lemmy. And you can follow the show at Bad Gaze Pod and visit our website at badgazepod.com for t-shirts, a link to our Patreon, and an episode archive. Thanks so much for joining us this week, and see you next week. Bye. Bye. Bad. 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 Bad.